welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, episode 21, The Fenians Are Coming. It was the 17th of March, 1865, St. Patrick's Day, and a young Fenian orator stood in front of a Toronto Music Hall exhorting local Irish Catholics to stand up for their homeland across the sea. It would take nothing, he said, for Ireland to shake off the chains of the oppressor and hurl away the manacles of slavery with which she had been bound for seven centuries by English tyranny and proclaim, as is their right to do, a free and independent republic. When the audience cheered, he told them this wasn't enough, that they had to do something. He sincerely trusted, nay, he had no doubt, that they hated as bitterly as he did the parent government which had attempted to destroy their people, lots of applause at this, which was turned thousands into exile and banished them from the home of their birth, from the home of their most tender affection and love, to seek one in a foreign land. If they wished properly to celebrate that day, it was their duty to erect an altar to the cause of Irish freedom and in spirit look upon God as their high priest, to join them together in the bonds of fraternal wedlock, vowing to sacrifice their prejudices if their prejudices clashed with the interests of their country, to humble themselves if humiliation was necessary, to bring freedom to the land of their nativity, and even to suffer death itself if by their death they would secure her life. Their motto should ever be liberty, equality, and fraternity, a trinity of brotherhood. To this, there was a lot of applause. So, yeah, stirring stuff. Also, maybe a little treasonous. Within hours, word spread of the incendiary speech. Local promoters hastily published a printed version, and this quickly sold out. Irish republicanism was sensational stuff in Confederation-era Canada. Over the last number of episodes, we've been so busy tracing the fate of the Confederation scheme that we've somewhat left behind another theme that has been such a key feature of the first half of this season, the religious conflict in British North America. Well, we may have forgotten it, but it's now time to bring it back to our minds. For in late 1865 and into 1866, religious conflict and Irish Catholic nationalism in particular rejoins the Confederation story. You might even say that without Irish radical republicanism, Confederation might not have happened at all, or certainly not when it did. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's Go back instead to a night, another St. Patrick's Day, seven years earlier in 1858. We've already discussed this particular St. Patrick's Day when way back in episode six, when we were first introduced to Thomas Darcy McGee. That was the day when different factions of orange and green Catholics and Protestants roamed the streets of Toronto and a riot left one Catholic man dead. That was when an orange mob chased McGee from his dinner, hurling rocks at his disappearing carriage. Then, having lost McGee, the mob proceeded to bombard the hotel McGee had just left, where other Irish Catholics were attempting to celebrate the special day. In the aftermath of that night's violence, 
no one was ever convicted of the murder, and Irish Catholics in Toronto were left thinking that there was no justice for their kind in the city. The incident made McGee famous and almost martyr to the cause of Irish rights in the Canadas. Moderate Catholic leaders, including McGee, felt that they needed to prevent further violence, and for the next several years they urged a cautious approach, preventing processions on St. Patrick's Day. They wanted to dampen down sectional violence. But other Irish Catholics learned a very different lesson. The events of 1858 pushed these others towards radicalism. It was on that day that local Irish Republicans founded the Hibernian Benevolent Society in Toronto, an organization that on the surface was merely about Irish brotherhood, a group of people who gathered together in fraternity to take care of widows, to offer funeral benefits to its members, and organizing uh, rousing soccer matches. Behind the scenes, though, the Hibernians were actually increasingly militant and politicized supporters of Irish republicanism. Quite coincidentally, that same St. Patrick's Day of 1858 led to the creation of another organization, though this one not in Canada. This was the Fenian Brotherhood. The Fenians sought to liberate Ireland from British oppression. Initially quite small and embattled, the Fenians would grow throughout their early 1860s and become a major international player. And the Fenians initially found their way into Canada via the Hibernian Benevolent Society. Now, not all members of the Hibernians were Fenians, but there were many Fenians in the group and many sympathizers. What does Irish republicanism have to do with Canada, you might ask? Well, depending on which Fenian you asked, either not much or quite a lot. The ultimate goal, of course, was Irish independence. That meant taking on Britain in Ireland. But there were many ways to skin a cat, or in this case, a British lion. And one strand of Fenian thought held that the best way to attack Britain was where it was weakest, in its exposed North American underbelly, right in British North America itself. Some Fenians argued that they needed to attack somewhere like Canada, demonstrating that the British could be defeated, achieve a symbolic victory at least, and if somehow the Americans could be brought on side, perhaps even much more than a symbolic victory. It's notoriously difficult to determine how much support the Fenians had in Canada in the 1860s, or to assess just how much of a threat they represented. One strand of thought has always presented them as a minor sideshow and a somewhat ludicrous and humorous one at that. But certainly, the fear of a Fenian invasion and several very real attempted invasions, as we will see, profoundly altered the entire debate about confederation in British North America at a pivotal juncture in 1866, just as the success of the whole project seemed in doubt. So the Fenians surely matter. The best recent historian of the Fenians, David Wilson from the University of Toronto, and also the great biographer of Darcy McGee, he suggests that at the height of Fenian influence, about 10% of Irish-born Catholics in British North America were active Fenian supporters. The Brotherhood could also probably count on the support of and sympathy of a broader group of about 30% of Irish-born Catholics. 
That's a significant minority, though always only a minority. The Fenians grew in influence in the early 1860s in Canada amidst a bunch of events we've already detailed in earlier episodes. As parliamentarians fought over separate schools, as Richard Scott's bill to further entrench Catholic schools in Upper Canada passed Parliament with the support of French Canadians and against the wishes of the majority of Upper Canadian votes. The rise of the Fenians also occurred in the midst of the Aylward murder controversy, where the Catholic husband and wife were executed for murder hanging side by side. And the Fenians grew more agitated after the Orange Order assailed the residents of Peterborough and dragged a cannon up the road to set it upon the Catholic Church to prevent Catholics marching in March of 1863. We talked about all of this back in our coverage of the early 1860s. What I've neglected to say in the episodes since is that this wasn't the end of sectional conflict. Tensions continued to mount in 1864, even as the Confederation delegates met in Quebec. On Guy Fawkes Night of 1864, that's the 5th of November, a crowd of several hundred Irish Catholics armed with cudgels and muskets paraded through the streets of Toronto. This is the annual day marking the foiled plot to blow up the British Houses of Parliament way back in 1605, an attempt by Catholics to get rid of the Protestant King James I and replace him with a Catholic monarch. Ever since, it has been a a fraught and frolicsome event with the burning of effigies and bonfires. And although in recent years it's mostly about setting off firecrackers, in the 1860s in Canada, the religious conflict was still very much to the fore. It was only a matter of luck that the Orange Order wasn't also marching that night in Toronto, or else there could have been significant bloodshed. It was at that very next St. Patrick's Day in March of 1865 that the Fenian Order, with which we began this episode, attempted to stir up the crowd to revolutionary fervor. And then, later that spring, with the end of the American Civil War in April, the Fenians got serious. A large convention of Fenians met in Philadelphia in October of 1865. That convention officially decided to target Britain via Canada. Although, of course, this was all secretively done. Rumors that this could be a likely strategy had been spreading for some time. In Canada, the government decided to turn the secret service that had only just been created, remember with the goal of preventing Confederate attacks on the United States from Canada, well, to turn this now onto the Fenian problem. So a small but devoted network of spies tried, initially unsuccessfully, to infiltrate Fenian networks and discover what, if anything, was planned. By the next month, November of 1865, John A. Macdonald was so worried that he called up thousands of militia and sent them to the border to stand ready against attack. So yeah, we can't know exactly how serious of a threat the Fenians were. But by late 1865, MacDonald was worried enough about an imminent invasion that he had set the Canadian military on ready. There was, in other words, a lot more going on in the mid-1860s than merely the stalled plan to unite the colonies of British North America.
We should, though, pause our account of the Fenians in order to catch up on what exactly has been happening on the Confederation front. When we last left off, the Canadian Parliament had passed the Quebec resolutions, but both New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island had rejected the plans for Confederation. New Brunswick in an election and PEI by a vote of the Assembly. Meanwhile, Tupper in Nova Scotia was holding off, even putting the scheme before the Assembly, and instead seemed to be playing an imaginary game where he pretended the Quebec resolutions didn't exist. The Canadians had gone to Britain to solicit help. The British agreed to do all in their power to urge the maritime colonies to accept the unification plans. What this amounted to in practice was that London extolled its governors to pressure their local executives into action and to replace those governors who seemed unwilling to do this. In Nova Scotia, they got rid of the old Lieutenant Governor Macdonnell, who had been no fan of Confederation, largely it seemed because he recognized how much it would diminish his own position. He had reportedly said to John A. at the Quebec conference, you won't make a mayor of me. So, out went Macdonnell, and in came a Halifax-born military hero, Sir William Fenwick Williams. Williams had spent his entire life traipsing from one military engagement to another throughout the empire, notably in Crimea in the previous decade. It didn't hurt that Williams was also said to be the illegitimate son of Queen Victoria's father, and so the Queen's half-brother. Remember, the Queen's father had spent some time in Halifax early in the century. At any rate, Williams came to Halifax with a mission of getting Confederation through the Assembly. In New Brunswick, the Governor Arthur Gordon somehow, and for some inexplicable reason, stayed in town. He also had been skeptical about Confederation, preferring his own maritime union scheme. He had initially requested a transfer and was all set to go off to Hong Kong. In September of 1865, he was back in London getting married. Few expected him to return to New Brunswick. And yet, shortly afterwards, he returned to Fredericton, bringing his new bride with him and with a newly discovered zeal to see Confederation through. All of this, though, is putting the cart before the horse. In many respects, what the British and British-appointed governors wanted was irrelevant if the local responsible governments did not want confederation. In fact, too much pushing by London could actually make the Maritimers dig in their heels. The governors would play their part, Gordon in New Brunswick especially, but the real shift in the fate of confederation started amongst the local politicians themselves and in the murky partisan battles within the anti-Confederate government in New Brunswick. The Smith government in New Brunswick had come to power as a coalition of antis, a mix of liberals and Tories who had one thing in common, resistance to the Quebec resolutions. The trick was that they resisted for different reasons, the Premier Smith disliked what he saw as their diminution of his home province, the way Confederation threatened to turn New Brunswick into not much more than a municipality. But others held the exactly opposite view. They actually preferred a legislative union, like in the United Kingdom, with a single parliament and no or almost no 
local powers. One of these men, Robert Wilmot, sat in the Smith cabinet, and in the autumn of 1865, he found himself at Quebec for a conference. No, not that Quebec conference. That was one year later, and this time the Governor-General had invited delegates from across British North America to Quebec to confer about another problem that also seemed to some like the single most pressing issue in the colonies. Not the Fenians, nor Confederation, but the impending end to the Reciprocity Treaty with the Americans. The Americans had announced their intention of letting the treaty expire in only a matter of months in March of 1866. The British North Americans desperately wanted some way to renew the agreement or to find some kind of new deal to ensure prosperity. This especially mattered in New Brunswick. The Smith government had claimed that an intercolonial railroad with Canada, the carrot held out in front of the maritime horse to get it to come into Confederation, well, they'd said that wasn't that important. What New Brunswick needed the Smith had maintained, was a, a western extension into Maine, providing speedy access to the American market. But all of that depended upon guarantees of trade that reciprocity treaty would provide. So off went Wilmot from New Brunswick to this other Quebec conference to see what could be done. While in Quebec, though, Wilmot seems to have been converted to the Confederation project. Whatever it was, the wonders of the great city, or more likely the frank discussion with his fellow delegates, he came back convinced of two things. First, his hoped-for preferred option for confederation, a legislative union, just wasn't possible. No doubt on this front, actual conversations with French Canadians helped to make him see the impossibility of his ideal version of union. And second, he began to seriously doubt that the Reciprocity Treaty would be renewed. Without reciprocity, Western extension would be impossible. And without Western extension, the Antis lacked a, a positive vision of what they could offer New Brunswick. Wilmot might also have thought that if he converted to Confederation and somehow managed to convince others, Perhaps he could head up the new government in New Brunswick that would bring the colony into confederation. Personal ambition never hurts to change minds. So, Wilmot returned to New Brunswick, a convert to confederation, though he also, for the moment, still sat in the cabinet with the Antis. That was crack number one in New Brunswick. The second big crack in New Brunswick opened up in early November of 1866 when longtime liberal Charles Fisher defeated a government candidate in a by-election. It was merely one lonely by-election. Still, this was a test of the government's popularity, and it was one the antis lost badly. Fisher won over two-thirds of the vote. There was no doubt that Fisher was a pro-Confederation candidate, though he was careful about how and when he advertised that fact. Fisher also had help in the form of thousands of dollars sent to him from Canada. Yes, we are definitely talking about serious election fraud by our standards. Yet, Fisher's victory was also a sign that the public mood might be shifting in New Brunswick, 
and it was a message to those within the anti-coalition that they might want to rethink their position, just as Wilmot was already doing. The governor, Arthur Gordon, back in the capital and ready to act, also attempted to play his own role and lure the main foe of Confederation, Premier Smith, out of politics altogether. Perhaps, Gordon suggested, Smith might be enticed by a position as Chief Justice in New Brunswick. The current Chief Justice was known to be fatally ill. The only problem was that as week followed week, he refused to die, and Smith, sensing that Gordon was trying to entice him away, dug in his heels. Two more events of November of 1865 in New Brunswick are worth mentioning. First, George Brown from Canada had come to town, stopping first in Fredericton and then moving on to Halifax. He met with all of the key figures in the Maritimes, especially on the Confederate side, but also with some anti-Confederates who he thought might be open to changing their minds. Governor Gordon of New Brunswick didn't much like Brown, but he did admit that Brown had energy and ability. The governor also told Brown that he was certain he could bring the New Brunswick government around to confederation, implying that the government could be bought. Then, also in November of 1865, shortly after the by-election loss, another government minister resigned. This one was Timothy Warren Anglin, a liberal anti-Confederate who was Irish Catholic. For months, and especially as rumors of rising Fenianism began to spread in the papers, critics had targeted Anglin, insinuating that he was disloyal, targeting the fact that he was both Irish Catholic and an anti-Confederate, insinuating that the antis were all disloyal, especially now when it seemed like the British really wanted confederation and in the face of a possible Fenian threat. The issue had played a role in the recent by-election. In late November, and with Anglin already angry that the government seemed to be taking insufficient action on the Western Extension Railway into Maine, Anglin resigned. Things were definitely not looking good for the anti-government in New Brunswick. The antis in New Brunswick survived through Christmas, but the new year in 1866 only brought more difficulties. In January, the Premier Smith headed off to Washington with other British North Americans to make a final effort at wooing the Americans into renewing reciprocity. While Smith was away, Wilmot, the member of his cabinet now committed to Confederation, and who was himself annoyed that he hadn't been asked to go to Washington after his own involvement in the Quebec conference the previous year, while well, he came to Arthur Gordon and announced his resignation. The governor, though, asked him to hold off. Wait until Smith returns, Governor Gordon suggested, and then we'll see what happens. When Smith did come back to Fredericton in mid-February of 1866, he arrived bearing bad news. The Americans had rejected the free trade pleas of the British North Americans. The Americans were, after all, facing mounting government debts because of their recent civil war, and they needed the funds that trade tariffs brought into the government coffers. British North America wasn't going to get a renewed reciprocity treaty. Once home, Smith also found that Governor Gordon was determined to push him into action on the Confederation issue. 
Governor Gordon presented Smith with an ultimatum. Gordon told him that he faced immense pressure from London to bring Confederation before the legislature. Gordon practically insisted that Smith include a paragraph on Confederation in the speech from the throne. And what if Smith refused? Well, this is where Wilmot's resignation came into play as a friendly threat. Gordon said that he liked Smith, he really did, and he'd, he'd rather work with him than Wilmot. But Smith needed to move ahead on Confederation, and he would work with whoever made this happen. As Gordon reportedly put it, I must test Confederation through Mr. Wilmot or through you. I prefer it with you. Choose which course you will adopt. Now, no one enjoys being put in a corner. Smith tried to delay. He initially agreed in early March of 1866 to include a vaguely worded reference to Confederation in the speech from the throne. But he promised nothing. He was merely putting Gordon off and trying to shore up his support. As week followed week in March, it became clear that Smith would not be pushed into changing his mind. In the legislature itself, the government's critics smelled blood in the water. They saw a divided and stumbling government where many of the independents or loose fish increasingly doubted their commitment to the government and where it seemed increasingly likely that something might be done to reverse course on Confederation. The main line of attack in the Assembly, though, had little to do with Confederation. The critics instead blamed the government for not doing enough to prepare for the imminent Fenian invasion. Wait, you say, what in imminent Fenian invasion was that? Oh yes, that was the other issue on British North American minds in early 1866. The fact that everyone was absolutely certain that the Fenians were coming. Initially, the rumors had it that they would attack by St. Patrick's Day of 1866. Everything always seems to happen on St. Patrick's Day. Well, the day of Irish celebration came and went without an attack. But the rumors persisted of gangs of men gathering in border towns, of caches of arms en route. Governor Gordon in New Brunswick had been on edge all through February and March. And while the rumors Gordon was getting were actually incorrect, the one faction of Fenians he thought were about to attack had in fact decided not to. That said, another Fenian faction, one which had initially been opposed to attacking British North America, well, it now felt pressured into action and had changed its mind. It was this group of Fenians who began gathering in a small town on the main New Brunswick border in March of 1866. Their initial foray would be a to a tiny island on New Brunswick's south coast, closer to Maine than to most of New Brunswick. But for that not-so-glorious attack and its impact on New Brunswick and Confederation, we'll have to wait until next day. Thanks so much for listening to 1867 and all that. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. If you really, really like what you're list that you're listening to, why not head over to our Patreon page and become a real-life patron of 1867 and all that. Thanks so much to those of you who have done that in recent weeks. I, I really appreciate it. 
All the details can be found in today's show notes. Next episode, we're back with the Fenians, for they really were coming to New Brunswick, but also to Canada too. And the Fenian invasions of 1866 profoundly shaped how many across North America felt about their safety and security, and about their fellow British North Americans, and about this whole project of British North American Union. The government of A.J. Smith in New Brunswick was not long for this world, not if the Fenians had anything to do with it, nor if good old Arthur Gordon could have his say. And he very much intended to have his say. Until next time, remember there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.